Welcome to First Words, a podcast presented by the First United Methodist Church of Florence. This week's message is brought to you by Senior Pastor Reverend Dale Cohen. October 3rd, 2021, As a Little Child. I want to welcome you to the first episode of First Words. Uh, this is the podcast of sermons for First United Methodist Church in Florence, Alabama, and we're going to dig right in on our first sermon, and the title is, As a Little Child, and the scripture is Mark 10, 13 through 16. The gospel reads this way, people were bringing little children to him in order that he might touch them, and the disciples spoke sternly to them. But when Jesus saw this, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not stop them, for it is to such as these that the kingdom of God belongs. Truly I tell you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will never enter it. And he took them up in his arms, laid his hands on them, and blessed them. This is the word of God for the people of God. If someone were to ask us why we have children, there are several possible answers. We could say we have children to repopulate the earth, and we could refer to this as the procreation hypothesis. Secondly, we could say we have children to carry on our name, and this would be the legacy hypothesis. Maybe a third reason that we have children is to create a better future, and we could refer to this as the optimism hypothesis. William Willimon and Stanley Hauerwas write these words, Christians have children in great part to be able to tell our children the story. It is our privilege to invite our children and other people's children to be a part of this great adventure called the church. And this is from Resident Aliens' Life in the Christian Colony. Telling the Christian story to our children reminds us of who we are and to whom we belong. When they reflect that story back to us, their point of view helps us maintain the awe and mystery of our faith. Our gospel lesson is one of Jesus' most practical teachings illustrating this very point. No matter how much we analyze this scripture, the central theme is this. Truly I tell you, Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will never enter it. Jesus didn't expound on what the faith of a child was like because he assumed everybody already knew. It's the innocent, trusting, open, and imaginative qualities that make a child's faith and trust so vibrant and real. A complicated and convoluted faith says more about our religious construct than it does about our relationship with God. Jesus' message was clear. If we want to see the kingdom of God, then we must approach Jesus with the same eagerness, confidence, and trust demonstrated by children. In Jesus' day, children were of no value until they could contribute to the many chores a family had to deal with daily. Jesus took a bold, countercultural stand in declaring their place in the kingdom of God. Again, the scripture says, But when Jesus saw his disciples speaking sternly to the children, he was indignant and said to them, Let the little children come to me. Do not stop them, 
for it is to such as these that the kingdom of God belongs. Now let that sink in for a moment. In a world that determines our value by how much we contribute, Jesus says that these little children who have nothing to contribute to the kingdom of God, well, they own it. God loves children because they're just like him. One of my favorite pictures of God comes from G.K. Chesterton, who describes God this way. Because children have abounding vitality, because they are in spirit fierce and free, therefore they want things repeated and unchanged. They always say, do it again, and the grown-up person does it again until he is nearly dead. For grown-up people are not strong enough to exult in monotony. But, perhaps, God is strong enough to exult in monotony. It is possible that God says every morning, Do it again to the sun. And every evening, Do it again to the moon. It may not be the automatic necessity that all daisies are made alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately, but has never got tired of making them. It may be that he has the eternal appetite of infancy, for we have sinned and grown old, and our Father is younger than we. I think what Chesterton is saying is that sin makes us boring and lifeless. But finding the means to exalt in the monotony of recreating beauty day after day makes us more like children and, ultimately, like God the Father. Now, I want to offer a word of caution here. Jesus commanded us to have faith like a child, not act like a child. In our interactions with others, including our relationship with God, we must exhibit a level of maturity that allows us to participate in a healthy, stable, and responsible manner. In 1 Corinthians 13, we read, Paul said, when I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became an adult, I put an end to childish ways. Paul challenges us to have the spirit and expectancy of a child, exercising these qualities, but with the maturity of an adult. As adults, we can create a transforming fellowship characterized by a childlike faith with an adult sensibility toward healthy relationships. I want to talk about characteristics of a transforming fellowship that is achieved through a childlike faith, and so let me describe what it would look like. First, in this community, we are genuine and authentic. In healthy communities, everyone is free to be themselves. Yet our instinct is to control people's perceptions of us. It's a projection game where we become whoever we think others are most likely to accept. In the process, we experience isolation and loneliness. We refuse to let other people get close to us for fear that they'll discover that we're not who they think we are. And it's a vicious cycle of wanting people to be close but needing to keep them at a distance Otherwise, they might see our facade. Paul was genuine and authentic as he expressed these thoughts about himself in Romans 7. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want 
is what I do. Paul admitted he wasn't perfect. Likewise, we must allow people to see us for who we really are, warts and all. If we're going to become an authentic fellowship that changes people's lives, we've got to be genuine and allow people to see our authentic selves. And this requires meaningful dialogue. This is my second point. We have to insist on this meaningful dialogue. For you see, it's easy to talk with others on a superficial level. It's much harder to talk with someone who has different ideas and perspectives than we do. One of the benefits I find from being in a small group that meets regularly is that they know me well enough to know my heart. Because we love each other, we're interacting at the heart level, not just at the head level. In 1 Thessalonians, we read, So deeply do we care for you that we are determined to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you have become very dear to us. When I talk about letting our conversations go deeper, I'm talking about the type of dialogue Paul described in this Thessalonians passage where we share our own selves. People get to see us for who we are and understand what we're struggling with because we're willing to engage in dialogue that comes from the heart. We move beyond the pleasantries expected of us when someone says, how are you doing? And we respond with the perfunctory, I'm fine, thank you. Those who love us won't let us get away with superficial dialogue. They will demand vulnerability. And that brings up my third point. If we're going to take our conversations to a deeper level, we must risk vulnerability. Exposing our struggles goes against the norms of our culture and may even challenge what our parents taught us. We're not supposed to trust anyone with our secrets for fear that they may use what we say against us. Unfortunately, I often see this mindset in couples experiencing marital difficulties. One partner is unable to express his or her feelings, causing them to become increasingly distant in the relationship. They are willing to destroy the relationship rather than risk vulnerability with their partner. Yet without vulnerability, we can't sustain any relationship. In 2 Corinthians, Paul described his vulnerability with the Christians at Corinth. We have spoken frankly to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open to you. There is no restriction in our affections, but only in yours. In return, I speak as to children. Open wide your hearts also. In our closest relationships, we must nurture the ability for intimate connections or we'll never experience the joy that is available to us. Vulnerability and trust then lead to the next step, and that's accountability. We resist accountability because we don't want anybody telling us how to live or meddling in our affairs. Yet, if we're going to be a community where transformation takes place, we must be willing to be held accountable for growth. As a rule, if nobody holds us accountable, we'll never grow. Now, I know there are exceptions to this rule. However, there aren't as many as we think. 
Paul himself encouraged accountability in 1 Thessalonians, where he said, And we urge you, beloved, to admonish the idlers, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with all of them, see that none of you repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to all. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. This passage is a description of what accountability should look like in a Christian community. It's not judgmental or heavy-handed. It's encouragement and support. It's keeping the task of growth before us in such a way that we're more willing and motivated to do whatever leads to growth. The spirit in which we offer accountability is vital, and so this leads to my last point. In an environment for life change, gentleness and tenderness are the primary tools for encouraging people to grow. Now, I'm not a hellfire and brimstone preacher, and the reason for that is because Jesus wasn't that kind of preacher or teacher. Yes, he challenged people and told the hard truths about life in the kingdom of God, but he was never mean, shaming, or overbearing. Colossians describes the tenderness of the community of faith in this way. As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, clothe yourselves with compassion kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bear with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against another, forgive each other. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. If we're the kind of fellowship where people's lives are changed, gentleness and tenderness are key attributes. We must become as open, trusting, and loving as children while creating a safe place for all of us. The first Sunday in October is World Communion Sunday. Christians across the globe all participate in Holy Communion as one body in Jesus Christ. Holy Communion is sometimes referred to as a holy mystery because it's hard to fathom the depths of God's love for us and the extent to which he'll go to offer us his forgiveness. God's mercy blows the limits of our minds. Well, since it's such a vast mystery, I want to offer a perspective from which we can approach the table of Holy Communion the next time we receive it. I grew up, as I'm sure many of you did, having to sit at the children's table when my extended family gathered for special dinners. It never bothered me to sit at the children's table until I was old enough to understand what the adults were talking about at the big table. Then I wanted to be with them and join in the dialogue. But to get the most out of this holy mystery that is Holy Communion, it's time to leave the big table and return to the children's table. For you see, it's not the big theological ideas tied up in Holy Communion that give it its power. The miraculous mystery is simply God's willingness to do whatever it takes to show his love for us. Karl Barth, the great German theologian, concluded a lecture in 1962 with the time for questions. 
One of his students asked this remarkable man who contributed so much to Christian thought and even to culture. This student wanted to know if Dr. Bart could summarize his theology in one sentence. Dr. Bart said, well, yes, I can. In the words of a song I learned at my mother's knee, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. It's that simple. It's that profound. Believe that Jesus loves you and receive that love as a child does. And then you will belong to the kingdom of God too. God is looking forward to playing with us in his kingdom. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen and amen. I hope that you've enjoyed this episode of First Words. And uh, be sure to look for us on all the places where you normally look for a podcast and save us for future reference. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to First Words. For information about our services or how to get involved in the community, visit us at fumcflorence.org and on facebook.com slash florencefumc.org.